Welcome to chapter 78 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson. In this episode, we're going to wrap up with that strange year of 1797, in which Britain faced some unusual problems, and its Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger, had to deal not only with them, but with internal conflicts of his own which may have been just as painful. You'll remember that it was the year when Britain had to re-establish its supremacy at sea, but then faced potential disaster when the instrument of its dominance, the Royal Navy, was itself shaken by mutinies at Spithead and the Nore. The anger of the sailors reflected that of many of their civilian compatriots facing rising food prices and unemployment. The economy was suffering as the sheer extent of finance needed for the war drained the country of bullion, its gold reserves, at a time when gold was the basis on which the currency and credit rested. Credit was particularly important at a time when government borrowing had reached unprecedented levels, so that taxation increases were needed just to cover interest payments, and any further loans were likely to be prohibitively expensive as interest rates just kept on climbing. But you'll remember that Pitt was something of a financial wizard. He came up with some groundbreaking ways of dealing with the country's economic problems. He trebled so-called assessed taxes, which covered things like the number of houses someone owned, or the number of windows in any one of those houses, or the number of servants working in it. Then he introduced three bands of such taxes, based on the income of the person being assessed. That made the move a precursor to income tax, an unprecedented measure viewed by many not only as financially punitive, but as an unwarranted incursion by the state into private matters, since it required individuals to reveal the extent of their income. Pitt, however, had the parliamentary majority to ensure it passed. He also blocked withdrawals of gold from the Bank of England before the run could leave it bankrupt. Instead, he made paper currency legal tender for all transactions. The Bank of England began to issue £1 and £2 notes, where previously the minimum had been £5, and the effect was to keep money circulating and therefore trade going. That averted a financial crash. Quantitative easing after the 2008 crash was something rather similar. The two measures ensured that Britain would be able to pursue the war if needs be. But would it need to? I mentioned last time that as early as 1795, the King's Speech, that's the Address to Parliament Stating Government Policy for the Coming Session, had included hints concerning peace with France. Pitt was keen to explore the possibility of coming to terms with the French. The peace negotiations were never easy, and hopes rose or were dashed repeatedly while they lasted. The threat of Russia joining the war might have pushed France towards peace. Then, however, the Russian emperor died, to be replaced by a successor far less keen on war, which encouraged the French to keep fighting, or at least to hold out for better terms. Even so, discussions continued into 1797, only to be dashed again following another coup d'etat in France. 
The government of France, the Directory, had been reasonably moderate, making life easier for royalists and other counter-revolutionary elements, as well as relaxing some of the measures against the Catholic Church and its priests. But then the Jacobins had another and final burst of dynamism and seized control of the Directory. The repression of people the regime regarded as enemies resumed, although never at quite the level of the terror. Between the coup in September 1797 and the end of the Directory just over two years later, there were 160 death sentences for political reasons. That's 160 too many, but a heck of a lot less than the 16,500 of the worst years of the reign of terror. There was still a faint possibility of peace. The Directory let Pitt's government know that a direct bribe might deliver the terms it wanted. For £1.2 million, peace was on, with Britain retaining the Cape of Good Hope. Another £800,000 would add Ceylon to the deal. Pitt responded with a much lower counteroffer, which at least seemed to mean that negotiations were on again. Only briefly, though, since the Directory upped its demands and talks collapsed again in October. That, you may remember, was the same month as the resounding victory of the Royal Navy over the Dutch, now allies of France, at the Battle of Camperdown. It was looking increasingly as though a satisfactory peace with France could only be obtained by victory in war and not by negotiation. These, though, weren't the only demons Pitt had to wrestle. At the beginning of the year, he was dealing with some that were very personally his own. George Canning was a young man and recent arrival in Parliament who started out as an ardent Whig, working alongside Charles James Fox and his long-term ally, the MP and playwright Richard Brinsley Butler Sheridan. However, the way things developed in revolutionary France and the war to which they led soon began to drive Canning away from his early friends and towards Pitt. Incidentally, let's pause a moment to think about political labels. Many people refer to Pitt today as a Tory, since his opponents were called Whigs. As we've already said, that wasn't how Pitt saw things. He liked to present himself as an independent Whig. The politicians who gathered around him were thought of as friends of Pitt. By the time Canning had broken through to higher office, however and he ended up as Prime Minister himself, if only for a few months before his death, he would see himself and be identified by others as a Tory. In effect, then, the great power of Pitt spelt the end of the long dominance of the Whigs in the 18th century, opening up a period of what would become mainly Tory rule. Nor should we make the mistake of thinking that the Whigs were the Liberal Party challenging the power of an entrenched elite as the opposition to the Tories might be viewed today. On the contrary, the Whig leaders, you might say they're bigwigs, were wealthy landowning nobles or the new class of highly successful businessmen. The division was more to do with attitudes towards the King and Parliament. Tories tended to favour a strong monarchy. Whigs were more likely to defend Parliament's prerogatives and the established church. Tories tended to uphold the hegemony of the Church of England. Whigs were more open to the demands of the non-conformist Protestants. Canning became a friend of Pitt early on, 
being made a government minister as early as 1795, when he was only 25. Between the two of them, there was a strong mental-disciple relationship. It was certainly close and warm. Pitt's biographer William Haig quotes Canning's view of Pitt. I think I have never left him without liking him better than before. I could not admire or love him more, even if I had no obligations to him. Some years later, Pitt's niece, Lady Hester Stanhope, told Canning that Pitt is attached to you in a way unlike what he feels about anybody else. In late 1796, Pitt, who had extended his already massive debts to buy himself a home near Bromley in Kent, developed the habit, when there, of visiting a friend and political ally, Baron Auckland, who lived a few miles away in Beckenham. Auckland had an attractive, intelligent and single daughter, Lady Eleanor Eden. She and Pitt would spend increasing amounts of time together, walking in the grounds or going out riding. Early in 1797, this behaviour was causing people to talk about the impending marriage of the famously single Pitt to Eleanor as all but a done deal. Then, however, Pitt had an attack of cold feet. He wrote a long letter to Auckland explaining that he couldn't possibly marry Eleanor. There was an insurmountable obstacle. In an exchange of letters, Auckland tried to persuade Pitt to change his mind, but Pitt remained adamant, even though he never clearly, or at any rate convincingly, explained the nature of the obstacle. The obvious one was pressure of work, but that didn't really stand up. As Prime Minister, Pitt needed help for which he would later turn to his niece, the Hester Stanhope I mentioned earlier, to run his household and preside at his table when he had guests. There was no reason that Eleanor Eden couldn't have played just that role. Well, it didn't happen. Pitt lived out his life unmarried. And apart from members of his own family, he had no close female friends. All his warmest relationships were with men. In the case of Canning, although the Prime Minister encouraged his marriage, William Hague points out that he was in a trance-like state at the wedding. You can see where this is going. Was Pitt gay? There were rumours at the time, though nothing conclusive, which is hardly surprising since it would have been death to his career for it to be confirmed. But it does feel as though there might have been some substance to the rumours. Pitt, at the time of his friendship with Eleanor Eden, may have been caught in a difficult conflict between his natural inclinations, his affection for a charming young woman, and the expectations of society that he should marry. If so, the start of 1797 must have been just as painful to him personally as most of the year would be for him politically. He'd killed off any plans for a possible marriage by the end of January, but the stress and the pain of disappointing good friends, and in the case of Auckland, a political ally, must have left a bitter taste in his mouth. Then he had to deal with the challenge of trying to find a satisfactory peace with France, and with the disappointment of seeing all his efforts fail. Still, at least that failure meant that the end of the year left the matter of war or peace far clearer than the start. His hopes for peace were gone. 
So, though he may or may not have been a gay Prime Minister, perhaps Britain's first, he was going to add another title to being Britain's youngest. He would become its longest serving in wartime. Following the naval victory of Camperdown, he was about to launch into a great deal more fighting, with all that meant for lives lost and money spent. Pitt's hopes for a low-tax economy with low government debt would have to be shelved. He had to bite the bullet in a time for bullets and rise again to the challenge of leading his country in war. But what country did Pitt think he was leading? Before the House of Commons in November 1797, he denounced France, or more particularly the Directory and all its works, and appealed to his countrymen to make every effort needed for the coming struggle. There may be danger, he declared, but on the one side there is danger accompanied with honour. On the other side there is danger with indelible shame and disgrace. Upon such an alternative, Englishmen will not hesitate. There is one great resource which I trust will never abandon us, and which has shone forth in the English character, by which we have preserved our existence and fame as a nation. That we know great exertions are wanting, that we are prepared to make them, and at all events determined to stand or fall by the laws, liberties, and religion of our country. Pitt is committing Britain to war, but he does it by calling on Englishmen to rise to the occasion. He does it in reliance on the English character. So we have England speaking for Britain. If it wasn't clear before, perhaps it's obvious now why I call this podcast a history of England rather than a history of Britain. England called the shots for Britain, so England carries the can for what it became. Well, we've reached the end of 1797, that year of difficulty for the country as well as torment for Pitt. It left him facing the prospect of renewed and expanding war ahead. But it perhaps also left him and the country better prepared than ever before to face all of that. I'm looking forward to chatting with you further about all of this next time. Thanks for listening now. <laughs>